Well, good morning. It has been a while since I have been up here, but I am going to refrain from using my entire 30 minutes to counter ask what John has said about me for the last couple of years. Let's just go with this mathematical statement. About a third of what you have heard is true. Let's go with there. Um, I am delighted to be here with you this morning and also with our campuses from down in San Jose, Mountain View, Saratoga, San Mateo, and South San Francisco, cutting a 50-mile swath here on the peninsula. And we are finishing today the third week in a series on reconciliation. John spent the first two weeks looking at how do we reconcile to God, which then prompts our reconciliation to each other. And this morning, we're going to look about extending that reconciliation to our world. And I don't think anybody in this room would doubt the fact that our, room, our world could use a little bit of reconciliation right now. Here's the truth about all of us. In between you and me and in between you and other people, there is always space. And reconciliation challenges us to do one of two things with that space between us. We can either use that space to continue to create distance to look at the other and find the differences and deem those differences as less than, or reconciliation can prompt us to close that space, to have a coming together and to create a connectedness and a restoration of relationships the way that Jesus did. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul wrote an amazing passage on our ministry of reconciliation. And he says a few things in these verses that are appropriate for what we're going to be looking at this morning. The first thing he covers is what the prompt is for us to be reconciled to our world. And he says it is because Christ's love compels us. What we have experienced with Christ then propels us to look for places in our world that we can carry this ministry of reconciliation to the people in our world who don't know it. He says that this kind of reconciliation causes us to no longer live for ourselves. And then he goes on to say that God has committed to you and I this ministry of reconciliation as Christ's ambassadors. So we're going to look this morning at how we seriously take that job as church members in restoring our world around us. There's a passage in 2 Samuel Chapter 14, verse 14, it's kind of an obscure passage, but it shows us that God has had in his mind since the very beginning of time this ministry of reconciliation. And it says that, that God devises ways so that a banished person will not remain estranged from him. And that word devise in the Hebrew carries the connotation of an inventing new ways. It carries the connotation almost of the word devious that God is that sneaky in trying to come up with ways to close that space between him and us and him and other people. So this morning, I want to tell you, uh, I want to go through a passage of scripture that looks at this question of reconciliation and how far out do we go to minister to our neighbors. And then I want to tell you a brief story and then I want to imagine with our six campuses on the peninsula how we might be seismic echoes of this reconciliation that we have experienced. I want to start with Luke chapter 10, a really fascinating story that Jesus told. If you grew up in the church, you probably heard it in Sunday school a lot of times and watched it play out on flannel graph. 
I'm here to tell you this morning, ladies and gentlemen, that this is not a children's story. When you begin to understand what Jesus was attempting to do here with the way he told this story, it is PG-13 at least. If you didn't grow up in the church, you'll hear it fresh for the first time. When you and I grew up in church, we heard it as the story of the Good Samaritan. It is very different from that. So starting with verse 25, we're going to pick up the story when it says that an expert in the law came to ask Jesus a question. This was very common practice in Jesus' day. Jesus as a rabbi was out teaching. And different experts in the law, different religious leaders would stop when there was a crowd gathered around a rabbi and pose different questions. Listen to what the author Luke writes about the motivation that prompted this expert in the law's questioning of Jesus because that would not have been apparent to the people listening. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? At face value, it seemed like a simple question, but there was something else going on underneath it. And basically, this expert in the law was trying to test Jesus and find out if he would agree with the other religious leaders of the day that what was true, that if you were loyal to the law and followed the letter of the law, that would guarantee you reconciliation with God and eternal life. But Luke lets us in on a little secret at the very beginning of the story to say this was not a simple question. And the man asked this question because he and other religious leaders had been uncomfortably listening to Jesus start to turn on its head the religious teachings of this day, that it wasn't the right path just to follow a set of rules, that something else was going on here. And so Jesus, knowing this, when he is presented with the question, what must I do to inherit eternal life, in Columbo-like style, does not give an answer, but returns the volley back with another question to this expert in the law. He asks him, what is written in the law? How do you read it? And so the expert in the law answers, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. He beautifully replies with the right answer. And Jesus says, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. That should have been the end of the story. He comes with a question he asks. Jesus asks him what he thinks. He recites the passage. Jesus says, you're correct. Do this and you will live. And that should be the end of the story. But it wasn't. And again, Luke gives us a little insight into what was going on in this man's soul. And he said, but he wanted to justify himself. And so he asked Jesus, and who is this neighbor you speak of? Because again, in that day, the vast majority of religious leaders would define their neighbor as people that looked and acted and lived just like they did. There was a very narrow, socially accepted circle of social strata, and the predominant Jewish thinking was that my love for my neighbor extends only as far as my family and my people that are just like me. And again, instead of giving him an answer, Jesus decides to tell a story. And in this story, he uses a very typical Hebrew framework that uses three different pieces of action to tell the story. Very simple, three words, come, do, go. 
And in this story, uh, a participant of the story would come into the story, he or she would do something, and then they would leave and go out of the story, and in that doing part would be the meat of the teaching that the rabbi was starting to teach. So keep that in mind as we started into this story. Who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus says, there was a man going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. Now, everybody hearing this story would be very familiar with this 17-mile road that went from Jerusalem down to Jericho. It was very narrow and twisty. There were lots of places for robbers to hide. It was very predictable that if you were traveling there alone, you had a chance of being apprehended by robbers. And Jesus says that when he went down this road, he fell into the hands of robbers and they stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and they went away, leaving him half dead. Now, again, there's another important part of the story. Jesus has purposely given a detail in the story to let us know that the man that was beaten had been beaten so severely that his clothes were gone, which means that any external clues as to what social strata this man fell into were missing. And so the next three characters of the story who are going to come, do, and go had no way of knowing if this man fell into the category of acceptable people that he should show compassion to and be a neighbor to. And so people are listening to this story and they're leaning forward and Jesus says in the next two words what they're all thinking, the hero of the story has come into the story. And Jesus says, a priest happened to be going down the same road. What was typical is when the priest was done with his priestly duties in the temple in Jerusalem on a Saturday, which was their Sabbath, they would leave either that day or early the next morning riding a donkey and go down the road to Jericho where their weekly home was, out of the heat and the hustle and bustle of the city. And the priest, anybody of that level, would be riding, not walking, because again, it was a dangerous place. And so the priest, having just fulfilled his religious duties happened to be going down the same way. And when he saw the man come, what will the do be? And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. Now, when Jesus said he passed by on the other side, this would probably have elicited some gentle snickers from people that were listening because this wasn't the road to Jericho. There was no road. It was a path. And to pass by on the other side was literally impossible and would have meant that he had to lift his donkey's head for his donkey to lift his feet up and pass right on top and over the man who had been beaten. So already in the story, the people listening are a little surprised by the hero that they thought apparently doesn't do anything and in fact does nothing and keeps going. My guess is the priest was thinking on the 17-mile road that is pretty isolated, nobody will see the choice I made. Nobody will know I chose not to show compassion. I'm just going to keep going and nobody will ever be the wiser. And so Jesus goes on in his story to introduce the second character in the come, do, go. And he says, so then a Levite. And I'm guessing at this point the crowd was a, a little bit relieved because the Levite was one of the 12 tribes of Israel who served under the priests. And now Jesus was going to make this secondary character the hero in the story, someone who would stop and help this man and show them what it meant to be a neighbor. But Jesus repeats it. When the Levite came to the place and saw the man, he passed by on the other side. 
So they're not really completely sure where Jesus is going with this, but they know that Jesus is telling this story to answer the question, who is my neighbor that I'm responsible to? How far out in the concentric circles of my life do I have to go before God considers me having done enough to take care of my neighbor and show the ministry of reconciliation? And so, being surprised that the priest and the Levite were not the heroes, the majority of people listening would have been expecting by the time the third character is introduced that Jesus' point was going to be the hero would be the ordinary Jewish person, not somebody high enough on the social chain to be a religious leader or even of the tribe that served in the temple, but just an ordinary Jew came by and saw the man on the side of the road. The next three words in this story I can guarantee you would have drawn an audible gasp from the people that were listening. And if there were parents, they would have clapped their hands over their children's ears because Jesus said the hero of the story, but a Samaritan. Now all of a sudden, their minds are blown and they cannot believe what Jesus just said. Imagine for a moment, if you can, in your life, who would you consider somebody that you could avoid showing compassion to because they are so far out of your circle, be it politically, socially, theologically, socioeconomically, whatever, that you would give yourself a pass on being a neighbor to them. And that's what Jesus was saying to this expert in the law. The person, not only that you least likely expected to be in the story, but that you would have not even imagined could be in the story. Because for the Jewish people, Years ago, the Samaritans had been a half-breed nation who they despised, who they would go out of their way if they were traveling from Jerusalem in the south of Israel to Judah in the north. They would go out of their way by scores of miles to inconvenience themselves and avoid even crossing paths with a Samaritan. And now, Jesus is introducing him as the third character, as the hero, as the answer to who is my neighbor. And Jesus not only says it was a Samaritan, but now, now that he's got the knife in, he twists it over and over again because he now, where the first two characters did the come, do, go without doing anything except continuing on, Jesus stops on the Samaritan's action and gives Seven do's that the Samaritan did. Seven staccato repetitions of the inconvenience that the Samaritan went to to show compassion to this man who was on the side of the road. He said that the Samaritan saw him and took pity on him. The Samaritan went to him. He closed the space between him and the wounded man. He bandaged his wounds. He poured oil and wine on his wounds, which was a form of antiseptic in those days. He got off his own donkey and put the man on his donkey. He took the man to an inn. He paid the innkeeper for his care. And it's like, well, they couldn't even believe when Jesus said, and then a Samaritan, and now Jesus is saying, and he did this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and this, and this. And then Jesus said, he promised to return to the innkeeper in a few days and reimburse for any other future expenses that were incurred. Jesus hit the note of due 
over and over and over again in answer to the question, who is my neighbor? And then at the end of the story, Jesus very simply lets the tension hang and says very simply to the expert in the law, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? You answer the question. And the expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. These are the kind of stories that Jesus told that never leave your mind because you keep turning them over and over again. And I can guarantee you that's what this expert in the law walked away thinking, what did I just hear? A uh, number of years ago when John and I lived in Chicago, we lived on a small cul-de-sac and almost everybody in our cul-de-sac went to church except for the neighbors on our right. They were about 10 years older than us. Um, they were married, school teachers, childless by choice, very committed to their careers of being great school teachers. And because John and I were pastors on staff at a church, we thought it was our duty to make sure that we invited them to come to church with us. So I remember the first time we invited them, we mentioned that John was going to be preaching and we'd love to have them come and they were so gracious. They smiled and they said, gosh, we'd love to, but that's the weekend of final exams and we're going to be so inundated with grading papers, we're just not able to come. Perfectly understandable. We were undeterred. A couple of months later, I went over there and I said, hey, I'm preaching this weekend and because I'm a woman and it doesn't count as much, we'll even take you out for lunch afterwards. <laughs> and then... Their smile was a little tighter, and their voice was a little higher, and they paused for just a moment, and they said, I, I think we're going to be clipping our fingernails that weekend. Yes, that's it. We're clipping our fingernails. We're so sorry. We can't make it. And I remember telling John, I don't think they want to go to church with us. So the years went by, and we kind of laid off of that. We exchanged gardening tips and had meals together. John visited the husband when he was in the hospital with a heart attack until he recovered. I took some meals over to her when she struggled with breast cancer and then recovered. And about the seventh year of the nine years we lived there, the husband came running over one day and said, Nancy, Pat and I would love to go to church with you and John this week. What time are your weekend services? And I thought, what in the world could have possibly happened? They had gone to school the week before, and they both worked in the same classroom. They worked with a teacher's aide for years who they just loved and treated like family. And she had come into work all excited. She was a single mom, three kids. Her husband had left her when the third kid was born. She had a really hard life making ends meet on a teacher's aide's salary. She would get her kids up in the morning, get them ready for school, and drop them off at a neighbor's house who could make sure that they got on the bus on time so that she could take two city buses to make sure that she got to work on time. And she came to work the week before and told our neighbors, you're never going to guess what happened. But a church I don't even go to gave me a free car. It's a van, and inside the van, there's gift certificates for gas stations and car washes. And I cannot believe somebody would do this. This is going to change my life. And our neighbors couldn't believe it. And as they asked her more questions, they said, I think this is the church our neighbors work at. And we need to find out more about this. We needed to find out more about this because 10 years before John and I came to the church, there was a man that we never met. He was a mechanic. 
He stumbled into church one weekend when his life was falling apart. He was heavy into addictive behavior. He lost his job. His wife had taken his two children and left. And he was in such a crisis that it makes you open to new messages. And he came in and he sat in the back of the church. And through the sermons and the music, over time, he began to hear the story of Jesus. And this compelling love of God that went to the extent to God giving up his son and putting him on a cross to make the distance between him and Jesus get smaller. He got involved in a small group and the small group helped him get into an addiction recovery program. They helped him work on his resume and get interviews and get a job. They helped him with marital counseling and his wife was starting to make steps back towards him. And his life over the course of about a year and a half had been reconciled to God and had been reconciled to his workplace and his family. And then he was left with this feeling of being so compelled by the love of Christ that he wanted to reconcile a bigger portion of his world. And so he came to our pastor and said, you have rich people in your church. Would you mind telling them when they get a new car, instead of selling for resale value, would they just donate the car to the church and I'll get other guys like me that are mechanics in the church and we'll take those cars to auction. And we'll sell the one car and we'll get four or five and we'll work on them and we'll get them ready and we'll start giving them away to single moms. The last year, John and I were part of that church before we moved here to Menlo. Our church had given away 200 cars to single moms, many of whom did not go to the church. Many of whom had their lives changed by a mechanic they will never meet because he had his life changed. And he was so grateful for the reconciliation that changed his life. He was looking for ways to extend it past the circles he would normally think of. And so for the next few minutes, I just want to think about our six campuses and how we can build on the already strong legacy of Menlo Church for scores of years that have been doing this very thing. And look at our six campuses that cut a 50-mile swath and imagine for all of our campuses that are in San Jose County. We have a partnership of longstanding with City Team, which is an organization that for scores of years has been doing extraordinary work with homeless and getting them back on their feet, getting them places to live and job training. All of our churches that are in San Mateo County have been connected for a long time with a ministry we do to the county jails. And our people in some of those campuses show up in those places and they build relationships and they shorten the space between the people and they listen to them and they hear their stories and their regrets and their hopes and they tell them about Jesus. And I would like to not only continue on those, I'd like for a few minutes to expand our imagination and look at some of the geography right around our campuses and think in our life groups and as individuals what new thing might we give ourselves to to pursue this ministry of reconciliation to our world because geography mandates calling. Where we live is our world. So I want to start just by looking at a community not far from here called East Palo Alto. There are many wonderful churches and really good ministries over there. There's a new one that I just went to about a year ago, started by two Christ followers who graduated from Stanford. It's called Street Code Academy. And these guys take kids off the streets and out of the schools, and on one night a week, these kids come with their parents or their guardians, and they not only learn how to code, 
for job futures. But it's all in the context of what does it mean to be an entrepreneur? How do you develop that gritty spirit, that persistence? How do you learn to make collaborative decisions with a team that solves problems for the good of people? How do you not give up? It's one of the most remarkable works I've seen in a long time. And from this particular campus, it's two miles away. Perhaps the most difficult part of some kinds of poverty is their juxtaposition to affluence and how close they are. And I'm guessing there are life groups that could think about connections with a place like Street Code Academy and get connected to reconcile to our world. There's Redwood City in between a couple of our campuses. And a number of years ago, I spent some time helping the San Mateo campus when it was first getting launched. And we came across an elementary school in Redwood City. On the entire peninsula, this particular elementary school has the highest number of homeless kids that go to that school. It was in the hundreds of kids that come to school in the morning having gotten out of a car or worse with homeless parents. It has the highest percentage of reduced breakfast and lunches on the entire peninsula. It has the worst third grade reading level scores on the entire peninsula. And it is a stone's throw away from some of our campuses. All the data shows that if a kid isn't reading by third grade level, they will never catch up. And there is one of many ministries up there called Generations United. And I know Frank Vanderswan and his um, Sunday school class of people that are elderly are up there on a regular basis mentoring these kids, closing the gap and the space between them and those kids, teaching them how to read, but knowing their names and listening to their stories and showing up on a regular basis to reconcile the world to Jesus. And then there's Pescadero. Anybody know where Pescadero is? At the 8.30 service, there was a woman in the middle, and she just went like this for about a minute. Pescadero's right over the hill between Half Moon Bay and Santa Cruz, and it's a pretty isolated area, but it's in San Mateo County. There's an there's a organization over there called Puente, and they work with farm workers and their families. They also have a collection of small churches up and down the coast that bandy together and help the work that they do. They do an amazing long list of work for the people over there. But one of the most compelling things I found out about when I visited there a few months ago is the, jun the public junior high and high school in Pescadero has no potable water. When the junior high and the high school kids get up in the morning and fix their lunches and go to school, they bring bottles of water with them because there are no drinking fountains. There is no running water on the campus. They use compostable toilets. That's in San Mateo County. Over the hill where my kids went to high school, do you know how long that would last over here at MA? Or the other schools around? John and I live at a little condo not far from here, and right around the corner is a junior high and an elementary school who every year have a massive fundraising campaign to add hundreds of thousands of dollars to an already glorious tax base that has these schools in pristine shape and right over the hill in the same county. Their brothers and sisters in junior high and high school are going to school with no potable water. Maybe it's our churches, maybe it's the churches over there, but wouldn't it be amazing if it was churches that answered the question to is this okay with a resounding no? 
And when the district found out who solved the problem of potable water in Pescadero at the school level, it would be churches. I think it's possible. I think God has given us divine imaginations and community, and most of all, he's given us reconciliation for us and God that fills us up so much that the love of God compels us to ask, to whom can we extend this reconciliation? Right now, as we're listening to these words and as we close the service and sing a song, there are single moms who don't know if they will have enough money at the end of the month to feed their children. There are overworked Silicon business leaders who are in your places of work that need to know that this is not all there is and there's a different way of life. There are children who aren't reading at grade level. And you and I have been given, Paul said, the ministry of reconciliation. Ambassadors of Jesus to say a resounding yes to those on the margins. Let's pray. To our good Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the way your almost devious mind went to such extremes to think of Jesus as the solution to reconcile us to you. And I pray for myself and for all of us in the room that our gratitude for that would be so overwhelming. That there would be a sacrificial and ongoing ministry of reconciliation that sweeps out and echoes from each of our campuses, that changes the fabric and the face of the people that live within a stone's throw of our homes. I thank you for this next week when we can marvel at the way that your son who died on the cross entered the world as a baby, quietly and slowly, and that the emerging realization of reconciliation was available to us, finally overwhelmed us. We are so grateful for Jesus, and we pray in his name. Amen.